Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Our guest today is David Aker, PhD, considered by some to be the father of modern branding. And in this episode, we are talking about creating game-changing subcategories and storytelling in high-tech and med-tech. Dave is Professor Emeritus at Stanford University and is the Vice Chairman of the consulting firm Profit. He has written numerous best-selling books on branding, marketing, leadership, and now storytelling. A couple weeks ago, we talked to Jeffrey Moore about moving through the technology adoption lifecycle. Today, we add another layer of sophistication to this with the concept of creating game-changing subcategories for your product to help separate it from the competition and thrive. To support this effort, we also spend some time on storytelling as a tactic to support your brand. Think about it. As an individual, when you share a story about yourself with friends or colleagues, you are probably hoping to enhance your personal brand. How you do this and what you include or leave out may make all the difference. The same can work for the products you make or represent. As always, you will find links to Dave, Profit, and some of his books in the show notes. And again, you will hear me refer to a couple attendees from the MedTech Leaders community. You can learn more about this community at medtechleaders.net. Remember, it is easy to share these podcasts with colleagues using the link in your podcast service. By the way, I recorded Dave while on the road in a hotel room. Yes, I have to do some field work too. So the video and Audio may not be up to my usual quality level. I appreciate your patience with this. Now, let's move on to the interview with Dave to learn how we can utilize subcategory strategies and storytelling to elevate our brands in medtech. Dave, welcome to the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. Thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here. Well, as you and I talked about the other week, and I mentioned in my emails, um, you've always been sort of a marketing hero to me because when I read Building Strong Brands, that's when I first realized what branding really was, even though I had had a title of like director of marketing or marketing manager. And in med tech, this is one of our problems is we'll promote an engineer, we'll promote a salesperson, which is what I was before I, when I got promoted into marketing, no marketing background or training, no experience at Procter and Gamble or any of these other big marketing companies. And we're called marketers and we really aren't. And I learned the hard way but your book was really helpful way back when, when I was reading it. And so what I'd like to ask you is, and you are considered for the listeners, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but people say you're the father of modern branding and which is true. So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and 
what you're doing right now. I actually worked in the medical instrumentation of sorts at Texas Instruments after college. And then I, uh, when I became a professor at UC Berkeley, I was kind of a statistician and I did uh, econometric modeling and, and so on. But I also did uh, a lot of other research. I was kind of all over the map. And in the late 80s, I got the, uh, I, I was doing strategy work and I came to believe that people were too focused on short-term profits and they needed to build assets. And given my background in, in, in uh, strategy, in market research, in analytics and uh, you know consumer behavior, it just seemed like mar- branding was the way that I could best help. So I decided to get into branding. I wrote a book called Managing Brand Equity, which defined what brand equity was. And the notable thing about my take was that it included the loyalty of the customers. Most uh, people were defining brand equity as image and, and uh, awareness. And so when you, when you put in a loyalty of the customer as a part of brand, well, do you, tend, you change what you do. You change who manages it. You change everything. And so that was really, I think, uh, a useful contribution. And then I wrote the book, Building Strong Brands, which told people how to do it. And then I have a, a model of how you model your brands that has a, two key principles. One is that you, uh, it's not a three-word phrase. It's multidimensional. And the second is you don't have predefined dimensions. You go with what works for you in your context. And and then I wrote a book on portfolio management, which talked about uh, how you manage your team of brands. And my experience in the the high-tech area in general and instrumentation in particular is that branding uh, is a mess because they tend to put a brand name on too many things and they tend to not understand what the brand is, is supposed to do and they tend not to prioritize. So uh, I, I, I've seen high-tech companies that are just paralyzed. They couldn't introduce a new product because there's so many brands and they don't know which one would work or if they start a new one. And uh, their customers, even their employees, can't tell you what brand you should, what product you should have because it's such a mess. And so the, the whole idea of managing your portfolio is really, really important. And uh, my uh, latest book is, I think, really relevant to your audience. It's about uh, disruptive innovation. It's my take on it, which, which uh, is different than almost all these other hundreds of books like Porter's, Christensen's, and, and, and Kelly's, and on and on, because they don't involve branding. And uh, my research suggests that branding is really critical in making an innovation work in the marketplace. And you have to understand that. Anyway, that's, that's kind of where I am. Okay. And you call it game-changing subcategories could you just explain the, and I, of course, we know what game changing is, and I guess a subcategory might refer to the fact that it's a, a disruptive uh, technology or something like that. But could you talk a little bit more about, you know, how, how you're approaching these game changing subcategories? Well, yeah, I, I started with... Uh... I've done a lot of work in Japan. I've been there like 40 times. And 
And one time I got a hold of beer data in Japan, and I looked at it over 35 years. And what I saw was that the only time the market changed in that time was only four times, four or five. And each time a whole new subcategory was, was formed. Um, Asahi light, uh, light beer was, dry beer rather was an, was an example. And then I looked at other categories. I looked at computers, I looked at uh, cars, I looked at water, and it was always the same thing. Anytime there was a big surge in, in, in uh, sales by somebody, a change in the, the market share dynamics, there was a new subcategory form, almost always. So I came to the belief that the only way to grow, the only way to grow is to create a whole new subcategory. So a subcategory I define as a uh, something that that changes the uh, buying or use experience in a meaningful way, or changes the brand relationship in a meaningful way, and 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 it's it's driven by what I call must-haves. Somebody has created a must-have that a substantial number of customers must have, and they they won't consider alternatives that don't have the must-haves. And uh, and so that's kind of the key. And it's it's almost always a set of must-haves, not just one. And and it's almost always these must-haves are evolving over time and improving and so forth, it's dynamic. So anyway, that's that's what a subcategory is. And, and my, uh, I mean, I use different words and different frameworks and different concepts to explain it. I think that's helpful. But my real contribution is to say that branding is essential in this process. And what you have to do if you want to create and, and, and get a new subcategory to work is, is you, uh, you have to do four things. One is you have to become the exemplar brand. That means you have to be the brand that represents the subcategory. And, and you do that by being a market leader. You do that by being a thought leader. You do that by having a strong personality, maybe a feisty, you know, I'm the underdog personality with these big guys are, are uh, a joke. And uh, you do it by, uh, by innovating and, uh, you know, like when Salesforce came in, became the exemplar for cloud computing, the software business, uh, in two two decades ago now, they uh, they were really uh, uh, noisy. They were arrogant. They were feisty. They were humorous. They uh, they ridiculed. You know, all these big oracles and uh, you know on and on. They called them obsolete. And they, uh, they, they basically imply they're not cool. And so you, you have to become the exemplar. The second thing you have to do is position the subcategory. It becomes a subcategory competition, not a brand competition. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer my brand's better than your brand. I'm trying to gain brand preference. It's my brand has a new subcategory that you really want and need and, and uh, will demand and let me tell you about the subcategory. So Salesforce talked about cloud computing. They talked about how it, you don't have to buy anything. No investment. Right. right. And, and second, you get continuous upgrades. You don't have to shut down your whole company every summer 
and then uh, install things that were invented five months ago. You get them five months ago, and you don't have to shut down anything. In the middle of the night, we'll 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 fix it in the cloud. You won't even notice. And, and they had to convince people it was secure, because uh, that was a reason not to buy the new subcategory. So they had to uh, explain why the subcategory is is secure. And the third thing they need exemplar brand needs to do is is to make the subcategory scale, scale, scale. You know, we used to have a uh, a concept in marketing called you know you you start out with a high price as you introduce a product and you capture some of the margin to fund your market. You can't do that anymore. You got to right. you got to bite the bullet. And so you have things like you look at Amazon, who's made all this investment for going apart uh, profit for 20 years, but they've scaled and you see the result. And you can scale using social media. You know, Dollar Shave Club came out with a, a three minute video. I encourage you to go to YouTube and watch it. And uh, it, 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 they put this out there with their new subscription buy a raisin through subscription kind of deal, they got 12,000 subscribers in 48 hours. You know, so they instantly when, went from zero to a, an established uh, a company at scale. When you mentioned that the other day when we were talking, I did go to YouTube and I watched several of those videos and they are hilarious. And they really hilarious. Do, they, so they make they, the point. They're a lot of fun to watch, but they do make the point clearly. Yeah, they totally used ridicule. They used humor, and uh, and that got them to to pass on. It's sort of you got to see this kind of yeah. thing. And the fourth thing they uh, example brand has to do is build barriers so that others can't come in. And and actually, if you have a, a strong position in that the uh, the must have is really established, that's a huge barrier. If you scale fast, that's a huge barrier because go ahead and install customer base. All the good guys are already taken and the competitors have to go after the uh, the leftovers. But there are other ways to uh, build barriers. This continuous innovation. A Prius had a car that owned a market all by itself for 12 years and they did it in part by continuous innovation. Every year, every other year, they had a whole new set of things that defined their subcategory and competitors were always behind. And uh, but a, a fourth way to build barriers is to brand your innovation. You know, would create what I call silver bullets, uh, um, your secret sauce or something. You, you need to brand it. And uh, a good example is Uniqlo, the clothing retailer that branded uh, two fabrics they helped develop in partnership with some fabric companies. One is called Heat Tech keeps the uh, heat inside the garment in the winter. Another is air fresh, which, uh, or aerism, which keeps the garment cool in the summertime. And, uh, and so that sort of indicates, you know, this is just a, not a low price knockoff of Gap. I mean, this is a company that innovates that can give you stuff you can't get anyplace else. And so people, uh, are, you know, trying to fight to duplicate Arizona and heat tech, but they don't own the brand. There's only one right. place you can get that. Sure, sure. I have I have to ask you this question. Uh, it, my funny bone is making me do this, but 
Um, how much beer did you have to drink to do that research on the Japanese beers? I go over there and order, you know, uh, uh, Bud Light or something, and and they almost throw up. So, yeah, I, I'm not a Asahi, and and uh, yeah, I'm not a in Karen. I'm not a I'm not a big beer drinker over there. Although sometimes when you're at a sushi bar, and it's all that salty stuff, you really uh, you you need to drink whatever they got. Absolutely. So when you look at uh, technologies and you know putting them into uh, the potential of having a technology go into a, creating a subcategory, would Zoom have been a subcategory? I mean, Zoom sort of came out of nowhere. I mean, we already had GoToMeeting, we had Microsoft Meetings, but they they didn't. In my mind, they didn't seem to especially when COVID hit, they didn't seem to evolve as rapidly as Zoom did. Oh, yes, for sure. Uh, you know, there's been really good research done on disruptive innovations. And one of the findings is that the, uh, the, the early market leader is almost never the pioneer, almost never. And you can go through, I mean, there's a, a great book out uh, that does this, goes through a whole bunch of innovations, and it, it's just never the pioneer. You know, look at Apple, for example. Microsoft introduced iPad two years before Apple did. Sony introduced the, uh, the iPod two years before uh, Apple did. In fact, Sony introduced two versions of it. Sony so screwed up, they their computer unit uh, it introduced one in their Walkman unit introduced another um, two years before Apple. I remember those. One was, it might've been called Zune or something like that. I don't know, but it was, it was, uh, it was premature. Yeah. The, uh, the technology wasn't there. And one of Jobs' great, you know, qualities was he could get the timing right. He would, he would sort of watch the technology when it was ready. That's when he went for it. And all these things, he just was did it at exactly the right time. And, of course, he did it well. And, uh, you know, a Diet Coke, there was all kinds of Diet Cokes before Diet Coke. You know, for decades, there was that, that product was on the market until Diet Coke came along. And, and, and just, uh, you know, the Prius was this blockbuster. Well, Honda was out with a, a hybrid car a year and a half or two years before Prius. So it's not the first one. It's almost never the first one. It's the first one to get it right. Okay, get it right and be smart about it. And so if we if we try to relate relate this whole message and these examples to medical technologies, so I guess one issue is that they have to be aware of these these key takeaways like from your book the key takeaways that you just went through, you went through the four things. So they have to be aware of it so they can apply it. I guess that's the one of the first steps is to know it's there. Yeah, um, I think the mistake that a lot of high tech companies do, I think that, that, as I said, the pioneer almost never is the winner in any industry, but it's especially true in high tech, I think. And, and the reason for that is they really don't understand a branding, they understand that you've got to create this terrific, wonderful must-have. They usually, most of the must-haves are not in the brand relationship phase. They're in the uh, improve the user or buying experience part. But 
um, they understand that, but they don't understand that you you need to you know you need to brand it and and you have to manage the brand and you have to have the brand do these four things: become the exemplar, position the subcategory, which means you have to think in terms of subcategory competition and winning the relevance battle, and not brand preference competition winning the preference battle. You know, my brand's better than your brand competition and and the third you have to uh scale and the fourth you have to build barriers and those are branding jobs or at least branding has a, a has an indispensable role to play right yeah because we are a lot of the med tech companies that are coming out with innovative technologies or they're frequently a um, like engineer founded the company knew that he could do something better than what is currently out there or come up with something that is, that's very helpful. Um, you know, or it's a doctor invented something or a nurse. And so it's technology driven and then it, then it becomes sales driven and we sort of miss the marketing part. And, you know, when I look back in my career, I, I sometimes wonder if that, what you're talking about, this whole concept of game, game changing subcategory, the, the branding and the marketing side of that is what we've missed where some products have succeeded a little bit by luck and then others have failed when they should have succeeded, you know, because they just didn't do these things. And then I think another thing I'd like to move into here is um, the, the concept of storytelling. And, you know, one of the things that, that we, aren't really good at in med tech is capturing the emotion of what we do in the products. And I think you mentioned the other day that I think you might, you were using a life science company as an example, or maybe one of the uh, companies that you've worked with, but that just do a good job of storytelling. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, one of my uh, favorite examples of, uh, of stories. Oh, I've got several, but uh, one is uh, UC Health. It's a regional healthcare company in Colorado. And I encourage you to look at YouTube under UC Health and look at some of their stories, or just look at their website. They, they have these dramatic stories of patients. They never talk about doctors, never talked about their hospitals. It's always the patients. And so they, uh, one of the stories is about a patient called Becky, and she's uh, in her late 20s. She was skiing in, in uh, Breckenridge with her husband celebrating their five, fifth year wedding anniversary. And she got a heart problem. And, and uh, it was serious. She was airlifted to Boulder where UC Health is headquartered. And they found that her heart was, was just about destroyed. And so she went in the hospital waiting for a heart transplant. That was going to be her only, only solution. And you in the in the video you see this doctor walking into the into her room and she looks up and said, Hey, we got a heart. And he said, Yes. And <laughs> such an emotional moment. And then and then you the they see saw the operation in speed frame and and then uh uh afterwards, you know, she made it and she was a survivor. And then they have a follow-up video where she goes to visit the mother of the donor. And knocks on her door and says that I want you to know that your daughter's heart is living and it's gonna 
do a lot of good. You just, wow. you just, you just have to, you get emotional just thinking about that video. And then they've got, they've got others. They do, I, they do an amazing quantity of these videos, and that's how they tell their story. And and they've been uh, ranked way above their their real status as a regional healthcare company because of these videos. And I want to I want to tell listeners and and viewers and stuff and I, I'm you know because we've sort of changed gears here a little bit but the reason I thought storytelling was so important is because a key part of the game change game changing subcategories is branding. And in reading Dave's book I was trying to learn and understand how storytelling can really support the brand and in so many different ways and it's it's pretty unique and way beyond what I thought. I thought I knew what storytelling was. Um, I, you know, I read stories to my kids. I love telling stories, but, but what the storytelling needs to include to be effective. And, and in reading your book, I realized I was, I was off. So that's why we're talking about storytelling. And in medicine, it's so important. And with med tech, and when I look at these dry, boring websites of one med tech company after the other, and they have so many opportunities to tell stories about their company, about the good that they do, or about whatever, I just think it's a huge missed opportunity. And I do believe that nurses and doctors respond to stories and respond to branding and respond to what it means to them emotionally. You know, they're supposed to be scientists, but I really do believe, because I've seen it myself, the loyalty people have to a particular brand is not always super objective. I think it's been based on their experience, maybe the stories that have been created in their own mind. But that's why we're moving to storytelling. So, yeah, please tell us a little bit more about what are the important components of storytelling. You know, I got into stories because uh, my daughter was teaching storytelling at Stanford Business School, and she got me interested in it. And and uh, when you get into it, you learn uh, some very humbling facts. And, and that is that people don't respond to facts and descriptions of products. They don't, they don't attend those kind of communications. They don't believe them. They're skeptical. They counter-argue. And and uh, and but most, and and they sure as hell don't share it with others. But most of all, they don't even listen in the first place. And uh, uh, but what they do listen to, what they do attend to, are stories. If somebody starts out by saying, "Let me tell you a story," their ears perk up and they listen and they don't counter argue. I mean, it's just a story. It's Becky's wanna... uh, skiing and has a heart attack. It's a story. What, there's nothing to argue against. Right. And I want to focus on this counter-arguing part for a second, because in your book, which I thought was really important, is the, the, the point that you make that we typically, and we do this in technology and med tech, we bullet point, this is, here are all the features and here's all the benefits for you. And I, and I could see what you're talking about. I could just see a doctor or a healthcare professional starting to counter argue in their head, like, oh, really? You know, are you sure? And how can you prove that? And I can just hear these things like going bing, bing, bing in their head. Um, 
But you're right. When, when somebody's telling your story, you're really focused on the story. So anyway, I just, I just want to reinforce this issue about counter-arguing and how stories can, can overcome that to a certain degree and open up somebody's mind. But keep going, please. Yeah, the most serious problem is they don't even read it in the first place. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, high-tech people, everybody is in this boat, but especially engineers. They really believe that people are rational. They really believe that if you give them the facts, then they will, uh, you know, uh, um, they will respond because that's a rational thing to do. And uh, I remember a long time ago, I was working with uh, Hewlett Packard and uh, Hewlett Packard put in to their ad some Dalmatians to lighten it up and to provide a little distraction, a little humor. And uh, they put in four uh, things in the, in then for the first half year, second half year, the engineer said, there's uh, too much space for the Dalmatians. This is put in one small one. They did that. And the next year the Dalmatians were gone. The engineers couldn't, couldn't, couldn't conceive of Dalmatians being more important than, the bullet points, and they would uh, they couldn't sacrifice the space, and the Dalmatians were over the top successful. They were making the the uh, the message more acceptable and so on. So anyway, yeah, it's it's a it's a, a big fallacy that your audience is rational and that they're interested. They're not interested in what you do. It doesn't matter how great you think your product is, or even a product advance, you, you way overestimate the interest of the audience in that. So anyway, that's that's kind of where stories come in. What, what stories do is to give the message indirectly. The audience figures it out for themselves. Right. And if you see this, uh, uh, this woman having a heart failure, and then getting a heart trance and this team of people in, uh, in, in high speed motion and, 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 you know, solves it and at the end of the day, it's good. You, you say, that's a hell of a hospital. That's a hospital that really cares about their patients. They wouldn't have done this video if they didn't. They really understand that woman. This is a hospital that has the technology to do a heart transplant and, you know, bang. And, uh, and it's got facilities that are, are going to be really top-notch. But they didn't say any of that. The audience right. figured it out for themselves. And so, they didn't have they didn't have bullets inside the inside the video pointing these things out either. And sometimes what you can do is uh, you know, another one of my favorite examples is Life Boy Soap, who has a, a program called Helper Reach Five that started in India because 2 million kids before five die, mostly because of, of water issues. And if you wash your hands right and regularly, you can reduce that death rate substantially. So they, they create a hand washing program they put in the schools and elsewhere. And um, they ran a video in, in three of the small villages, each had a video describing a mother in that village uh, after the program. The, these three videos got 44 million views. Now, this is bar soap. How do you get 44 million views talking about bar soap? 
Hey everybody, I am splicing in a comment here about this Lifeboy campaign that received so many views for the stories it told on uh, YouTube, or via video, I should say, that Dave is referring to here. It is amazing storytelling, and I went to YouTube and I looked at it for myself, and if you add up all the different videos and how many views they have, it probably is over 44 million that he mentions, but when you go to YouTube, look up Life Boy Help a Child Reach 5. And what he says is true. Over 2 million kids die a year in India due to diarrhea and pneumonia and other factors related to the water. And hand soap, just washing your hands, saves a lot of children. And the one video I saw, which was almost four minutes long but was very compelling, I was glued to it, uh, was about a father celebrating the fact that he had his first child reach the age of five. That's pretty emotional, and it has great impact, and all for a bar of soap or pump soap. It's pretty amazing. Back to uh, the interview with David. How do you get 44 million views talking about bar soap? Well, you don't. But if you can talk about the emotion behind the mother's... uh, relief that her child reached five or the mother's sadness because her child did not reach five, uh, you have a, uh, you have really powerful, memorable message that people want to want to pass along. And uh, so, but the reality is you can give some bullet points. Now, sometimes they're, they're in, they're implied by the story and you don't have to, but sometimes you can give a bullet points before or after the story. So the story provides the uh, motivation. It, it sort of tees up the, the facts. The facts and descriptions will be more acceptable, more palatable, more memorable if they're motivated by a story. What so are you some do the story first, and then you tell them about 2 million people die, and we can say we can reduce that. Or you give the statistic first, and then you say, let me illustrate what I mean by this. Let's look at one of these mothers. And then you give the, the video. So in that case, the, the story is providing the role to provide texture and rationale for these statistics. They're, they're sort of illustrating what the statistics are really about. What are some common mistakes in storytelling and when you're trying to support a brand or support a value proposition? There's three challenges. One, you have to get your organization to believe in stories. That's usually not the hard part because uh, everybody knows that, I mean, they remember stories they heard as an infant. So they know that stories, you know, get through and, and get remembered. The, the harder part is finding good stories. And then the third hard part is making those in at a professional presentation. So they're, they're exposed to the right people at the right time in the right format that uh, will, will tell the story effectively. The kind of company that uses stories extensively are B2B companies, medical electronics companies that are selling to hospitals or doctor offices, that's B2B. They use stories because the the clients they're trying to sell to demand stories. They want to say, 
have you done this before and how did it work out? And anybody like us buy any of this stuff? So they've got stories. My company, Profit, a brand strategy consulting company, uh, we have 100 stories. And, and all, almost all companies like that, all B2B companies have stories. They, they have to. The problem is that almost all those stories are, are, are terrible. Okay. They're, bland, they're bland, they're watered down, they're, they're uh, edited to fit on one page or whatever the format is. And uh, they, they take out all the emotion, they take out all the tension. I mean, some of these stories, it, it, it's like writing a thriller. I mean, you ran into this, this big barrier and, and it, was, it was crushing and you couldn't sleep a couple of nights and then you got an idea and then you got another resource and then you got a partner. And, and it, it, it's, it, sometimes the process can be really compelling. But that's not what you get in these B2B stories. They, they basically say, look, we've got to have illustrated case studies and, uh, and it, go, go make some case studies. They, the, the charge is not to find really compelling stories that have you know, tension, emotion, and, uh, and detail. And you get to know the characters. And so anyway, that's a big problem for B2B companies. And, and you ask, why on earth are they so stupid? One reason is that they're, they either, because it's true or because they think it's true, they think they're, the subjects of their stories will be sensitive. So they want to take out the stuff that, that, they, that might cause sensitivity. And, and so they dumb it down. That, that's one of the main reasons. Another reason is they, the people that are presenting these stories are not professionals at storytelling. Right. They're just some, some, somebody, market, some money, somebody way down in the marketing ladder, maybe an intern, is just starts, you know, we need this case study. It's got to fit one page. You know, that's, that's your charge for the week. On the storytelling, again, when you talk about they're not professional storytellers, you know, so the, and it goes back to us and med tech typically not being, you know, necessarily the best marketers in the world. And, you know, it's almost like you could, and I don't know if it was you or somebody else, or if I read it in one of your books, it was like, it might be a good idea just to go hire a, a journalist to be in your organization that would be processing these stories, going out and finding the stories, identifying them, helping to outline them so that they could then put be like be put to video or they could be video and text. They could be both. But um, that does take a different kind of individual, I think, to understand what a story is and, and you know, how to craft it. The reality is that a lot of people are realizing this and a lot of, of uh, newspaper reporters and, and TV personnel that uh, are finding their organizations downsizing are going to work for companies and becoming professional storytellers. Okay. Merrick and Rob have said, so what company would be an example of a good or a legitimate storyteller? So I think we've sort of answered that a little bit with the, the Dollar Shave Club and the uh, Colorado hospital system. I think the larger the company, the more hard to tell a compelling story that creates a con connection. 
So I don't know if you have a well, comment I, on I, that, Dave. Loosely, a larger company might have the resources to have a uh, support unit that can professionally tell stories and distribute them. And so they have a big, uh, a big step up in that regard. And so okay. it, it's a, but also big companies have, have terrific silo problems and to have a centralized storyteller unit is, is got some organization. I wrote a whole book on silo problems called spanning silos. And that's, that's really, really a difficult. It's a good reason people have silos decentralized. It has, gives you a lot of vitality and accountability, but boy, it makes things like branding hard to, hard to manage and anything that is cross silo is problematical. Okay. And the other comment was <clears throat> from Rob was, he just said, this has been great. Thanks. He had, he had to leave for a meeting. One other question I was going to ask you, I mean, do you think we've covered the concept of story to the basics? I mean, really it's a, complicated issue that I somebody needs to read your book. And I, you know, everybody knows that in my show notes, I have links to your books and, you know, to your website and stuff like that. Is there anything that we missed in the conceptual area of storytelling that might be important? No, I, I think that uh, just the knowledge that you have to believe in stories and and buy into that thing, but you also have to find a way organizationally to identify stories and then a way to professionally present them and put them in front of the right audiences. And that really involves some professionals at that, which can be inside the organization or outside. Uh, sometimes people use uh, ad agencies for that kind or that type of, of outfit for that or, or, or maybe freelancers even. It really takes a professional touch to be able to tell a story, but then it also takes some somebody, uh, the right kind of person inside to to find these stories, right? And and to to find the the stories that not just superficially uh, seem to make a good point, but also have some some sort of intern. You can you can tell them in such a way that they have some tension, some interest, some uh, interesting characters and, and so forth. Okay. And then another question I wanted to ask you is what do you think the next few years looks like for marketing? Is there, do you see any developments that are going to change our strategies and tactics? In, well, in addition to I'm asked, some of these things that you've been bringing up, like storytelling, for example, and game-changing well, subcategories. Well, I think that, uh, yeah, I think this subcategory competition, it's just it's just put on steroids by digital mm. in, in all kinds of ways. And uh, not only the Internet of Things, but social media, e-commerce, and it just means that, that subcategories are coming faster than ever. And whether you're... Uh, behind one of them or you're trying to defend a market from them you really have to understand that whole process to do your your uh, strategizing over time uh, and i so i i think that's one of them i think that yeah i think stories represent another more generally i think that uh, digital is content and content is stories and i think yeah i that, agree with you 100 uh 
So you really have to understand content. You have to understand communications in that context. And you have to understand the roles, stories, because that's one, um, that's one facet for, for dealing with this, uh, this digital age we're in. Uh, a third thing is, uh, is the book I'm now just finishing. It's uh, Applying Branding to Social Programs. And um, if you, uh, there's been a battle for the soul of capitalism for the last two or three decades. And one, uh, one is a conventional wisdom that the companies are in business to uh, maximize shareholder wealth. And that's sort of got an elegant, logical basis to it. The alternative that, that companies have to consider all stakeholders, including the community, the society, and the planet. That's more or less won the day. And so what used to be a, a nice-to-have thing, a social program or something, is, is now really an imperative. So I yeah, think I in, in the future, I mean, the, the, the pressure from employees and, and customers and investors, but especially employees, are amazing. You know, you look at Generation Z and even the millennials, they won't go to work for a company that's in business only to maximize profits. Or they won't, and they won't stay with the company. So uh, just to compete for talent, you have to uh, learn to do the right thing. And so then it, it becomes a big issue about how to, uh, you know, how to find the right social program and how to manage it. And here again, like in disruptive innovation, my take is that branding is really crucial and branding is, is way under understood and underused by uh, social programs, whether they be programs of a, of a big company or a business within a company or whether they be external uh, programs that they've become an active partner with. In either case, you really have to understand branding in order to, uh, to make this work. And, and sort of a, a, a new uh, dimension to social programs is they ought to also help the company. They ought to help the company because then they're, they're just not a deadweight drag. And, and because of that, they're more likely to get ongoing commitment and support. Secondly, if, if they're an active partner, they're more likely to get access to assets and skills that can help them. Right. You know, the, the, such an important uh, thing that you're talking about. I know a company in, in ophthalmology, a small company, but they do spend a lot of uh, time supporting these um, uh, international trips of surgeons into third world countries to, you know, to provide procedures and provide help. And they created an album with some videos and some photos and stuff on their website, but it's buried, you know, as opposed to something that's up front and where everybody can see it. And, but that stuff was buried. And I remember thinking, gosh, you should have that front and center because it's so compelling. And, you know, it would, it would get people interested. So anyway, this, I agree with your point. Um, we've hit the, the hour mark, and I don't want to keep you any longer than I promised, but I really appreciate this. This has been very, very interesting. And like I told the, everybody, books, links in the show notes. You really have to read this stuff. I'm reading it. 
and you'll learn from it. So Dave, again, thank you very much. Okay, well, thanks for having me, Ted. I thought Dave's comment that the leaders and subcategories are frequently not the first entrance. And it may be because the first one there didn't know how to capitalize on the subcategory. For example, Zoom didn't start the virtual meeting subcategory, but they certainly have dominated it. And Google wasn't the first search engine. The point is that your company may have an opportunity with a unique product to do just that. The result could be greater recognition, leading to greater awareness, more interest, and finally, higher sales. This can all be enhanced by good storytelling. After all, we are in the medical business, helping patients and healthcare professionals. We have stories to tell. Even what may seem like the most benign product may also be part of a great story. Put it on video. If Lifeboy can do it with soap, you and your team can too. Thanks for spending time with me and Dave today. Now go win your week. <laughs>